Okay, Genesis chapter 3. God's word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me. Father, we read here of tragedy that has impacted our lives. Help us see it, understand it, and find the hope that you promise. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. God has a perfect design for you and for me and for all of creation. But when we walk away from that design, we find ourselves broken without the ability to repair ourselves. Only the saving grace of God and repentance of our sin can begin to return us to the perfect design that the Lord has for us. And that's true in every area of your life. And we're going to see that this is especially true in the issue of marriage. Today we're returning to a study that I'm referring to as a biblical theology of marriage. And what that means is that we're going to be continuing a walk through the Bible to see what God has said to us from the beginning to the end about marriage and related issues. This kind of series is necessarily front-loaded because we learn a tremendous amount about God's design for the human family and what's gone wrong in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Today... Here's our plan. I want us to walk through Genesis 3. I want us to look to the fall of mankind. And I want us to see how things have gone wrong. Then, Lord willing, we'll be able to make a very quick sweep through the remainder of the Old Testament. That's the plan, Lord willing, for next week. And we'll see, if you will, the fallout of the fall. Then we'll make a quick stop in the Gospels to see what Jesus says about this issue. We'll touch a little bit about marriage in the epistles in the New Testament. And the whole goal here is to take us back to our series in Ephesians, picking up in 522, which speaks to us about living life as a Christian wife and a Christian husband. Now, before we look at Genesis chapter 3, I want to point out to you a few things that we've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 regarding the issue of marriage. I'll list them. And then we can be ready to pick up with the fall. Now, I believe that you've got this list I'm going to reference in your worship guides. Is it there? Oh, goody. That makes this a lot easier, doesn't it? About God, what have we learned so far over the past few sermons? We've learned that God is good. You guys agree with that, don't you? We learned that God's word is perfect. We learned that God knows us and our needs better than we know ourselves. Do you guys buy that one too? This is really important that you get this. Now, God also has all the authority as creator. In Genesis 1, we saw that. And God created marriage. God is the only person who has the right to define what marriage is because it's his because he made it. Now, what have we we learned so far about humanity in the past few sermons? All people are created in God's image and have equal value in God's sight. That's good news. God created us 
with gender. It says male and female, God created humanity. You are one or the other. Men and women are designed by God to complement one another, meaning to, to sort of fill out where the others are lacking, both sides. Humans are designed by God for the purpose of work. We are to multiply and to rule over the earth. We are to tend it and care for it. And then specifically about marriage, we've learned that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. It is designed by God to be monogamous, one man, exclusively one man and one woman. And it's designed to be heterosexual because it is one man and one woman. Marriage is the only proper way for humans to experience sexual union. God charges the man in the marriage with the responsibility of leadership in the marriage. He's supposed to lead. He's supposed to protect. He's supposed to tend and care in the home. God charges the woman in the marriage to help her husband fulfill his God-given tasks. We saw that in Genesis 2, 18 especially. And in general, one of the purposes for marriage is that it would result in more people. That marriage would result in children. Now again, we know that in our world there are many who are suffering through sadness in that area. But in general, people who are considering marriage should assume that children are part of the bargain. And I believe we saw all of those things established as we watched and looked at some of the Psalms and saw God's design for marriage in Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. Does that all sound familiar to you guys so far? You still with me? Okay, we did not cover any new ground, right? Okay. Now, sadly, I think we all know that most of the world is no longer following God's design. Wouldn't you agree with that, too? And this is to our great sorrow. So come with me. We're going to look at Genesis 3, and we're going to see how we began to mess things up. And we're going to see how to find hope in a broken world. We're going to see what the story of the fall tells us about humanity. We're going to see what it tells us particularly about marriage, just quickly, a small thing. And we're going to look to see where we can find hope because that's a big deal. So we're going to revisit a story that I believe many of you Christians know and most of you at least got this far through in your Bible in a year reading plan this year. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In the last time we visited the Bible's account of creation, everything, how did God describe it? Do you remember what word God kept using when he made stuff? He looked and it was good. Man, everything was good, good, super good. 
And God made a man and a woman in his image and he placed them in a beautiful garden and he gave them satisfying work to do and he provided for their every single need. God gave the people, get this, only one rule, only one restriction. They are not allowed to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the center of the garden. God said, this one tree is off limits. Everything else in the garden, including the tree of life, is fair game for you. You just can't have this one thing, one restriction. Y'all, this is a good life these two are going to have, right? Now, if you know your Bible, you know that there is an evil being, a fallen angel who exists. We call him the devil. We call him Satan. And in the garden, the devil somehow spoke to the woman through a serpent. And a study of what we just read would reveal to you that the devil is twisting the truth and he's trying to make it look like God is not good, not kind, and not just. The devil tempts the woman to cast off the authority of God. He tempts her to go against God. He tempts her to say, hey, sweetie, you can become your own master. How tempting is that, right? Then, verse 6. So when the woman saw, pay attention to this, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here we see tragedy strike. The woman is confused by the devil. And she looks at the fruit and it looks Nice. It looks good to her. She decides that it's good. By the way, at that moment, she made her own moral judgment, declaring a thing to be good that God says is off limits. Y'all, that is incredibly destructive. Be careful ever allowing yourself to be tempted to think a thing is good that God says is bad or to think a thing is bad that God said was good. The fruit looks like it would be tasty. And who doesn't want to know more? Who doesn't want to be their own little God? She is going to be her own little God, her own little master. Hey, maybe she won't die after all. The devil said she wouldn't die. She's just going with what she's been taught, right? So the woman takes the fruit and she eats it. And that's bad, but there's something much worse. It says that she gave some to her husband who was with her. Where was her husband? With her. This is a stop the presses moment. The man was there, the husband, the one charged with protecting the woman, caring for the garden, protecting the garden, keeping the garden. He stood there and he watched his wife rebel against God. He 
watched her taken advantage of by the snake. He watched her be misled. And then he, without any misleading, without any confusion, without any lack of understanding whatsoever, takes the fruit from the woman's hand, willfully turns against God and bites down. What's the big deal? So what? It's a piece of fruit. But it's far more, isn't it? The fruit was a real thing, and it was real fruit. And I even told you last week, I'm not even sure that the fruit did anything particularly. But the impact of this fruit was huge. Because, see, the fruit was real, and the command of God was real. God gave the people only one rule to follow. He gave the people only one way to show that they were still under his leadership. He gave them one way to show that they would submit to his word. He gave them one way to say, God, you are the God, you are the king, and we are the subjects. They had one way to say to God, Lord, I will follow you. And they chose on their own to say to God, I will not follow you. I will be my own master. I will make my own rules. I will declare my own good. And they knew evil the moment they turned against God. Over the next verses from verse 7 to 13, we're going to see several things that happened in the lives of the man and the woman after they ate the fruit. And these are not necessarily punishments for sin, by the way. What these are are the natural logical consequences, the natural logical outcomes of rebellion against God. I'll give you four of them if you want to write four things down just for grins and giggles. The first thing that happened, watch this, shame and futility happen. Aren't you glad they brought that to us? How many of you are so glad we got a little extra shame and futility? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately after the people ate the fruit, they had a level of knowledge that they had not previously had access to. And this does maybe indicate that, that the fruit changed them. It's, again, it's super hard to know exactly what the behind-the-scenes working is here. But the thing is, they knew what was evil as well as what was good. And the people are made aware that they are naked. They are unclothed. They are exposed. Before Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the couple was described as being naked without shame. They were a husband. They were a wife. They had a perfect world. They had nothing to hide. There was nothing that was wrong. There was nothing that could hurt them. But for the first time, they have shame in their lives. They're ashamed of their nudity. They're, they they want to hide from God and from each other. So they gather for themselves leaves and try as best they can to cover up their nakedness. And that's where futility enters in, because you know what, y'all, that wouldn't work well at all. I just heard this morning somebody tell me they'd seen a little picture of a goat. It was buried in leaves, and it said, oh no, I've fallen into Adam and Eve's laundry. It wouldn't work, though, would it? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been ashamed of yourself? You ever, you ever felt that horrible, sick feeling in your gut 
when you realize that you're wrong, when you feel like it's exposed and people can see it, when you feel like other people see you in your failure, have you ever wished you could take a thing back and known that, you know what, you can say you're sorry, but you can't undo the thing you did? You ever feel that? That is a natural consequence of what the first couple did in the garden. That would not be in our lives were it not for this moment. And that's always the result of turning from God. Secondly, second consequence of walking away from God, hiding from God, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's the shame of the people now done? It has led to them wanting to hide themselves from the God who made them and who has provided everything they could have ever needed. Hiding from God is a natural consequence of sin. And how dumb is it? Because we know there's no way to hide from the God who knows everywhere, who knows everything and is everywhere. Third, fear. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The man was afraid. Do you understand that never before had fear been a part of the human condition? Do you like being afraid, by the way? I'm not talking about the little fun little jump you might get on a ride at the amusement park or the little fun little jump someone might get when something leaps out and scares you in a movie. I mean real fear. That stinks, guys. Real fear definitely stinks. But once mankind rebelled against God, Fear would become a part of their regular lives. I feel like I'm having issues. Is this having issues for you guys too? Fourth thing, conflict and blame. Look at verses 11 through 13. 11 through 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How sad is this? God asks the man, hey, what'd you just do? Now, God knew what the man had done, but God gave the man the opportunity to come clean. God gave the man the opportunity to confess and own his failure. And the man blames two people. First, he blames the woman. 
He wants to tell God, it was the woman's fault that I failed. But the man also said, it was the woman, God, that you gave me that failed me. So, in a sense, this man is saying, God, it's actually kind of your fault. Because you gave me a defective helper. And then the woman, thankfully she doesn't blame the man. She does make it clear that she thinks that the serpent was to blame. But listen up, folks. Fighting with each other, blaming each other, throwing other people under the bus, that is a natural consequence of sin. It's what naturally happens when you rebel against God. Before, before this, the man and woman lived together and they were united. They were a perfect team. But now because of sin, they've turned on each other and they're blaming God as well. Y'all, sin, sin naturally has consequences. And there are many sins that have consequences that are not divine punishments. Drunkenness leads to family destruction, disease, and death. It's not because God is visiting the person given to drunkenness with extra punishment. It's just the natural outcome of the sin. Adultery leads to violence. It leads to emotional chaos. It does it disintegrates families, it harms children, it rips apart society. That's not the punishment of God, that's just what happens. Pornography leads to men and women who cannot live in the real world with real relationships with real people. Pornography leads to the abuse and the devaluing of women. Gluttony leads to obesity. Gluttony leads to disease. It leads to a an idolatry over the physical pleasure of eating. Those are just natural outcomes of that choice. See what I'm saying? Disobeying God's commands always leads us to circumstances of pain and sorrow. And even if we don't see it at first, there's always pain that follows sin. So let's make sure that our minds know that we want to be afraid to go against the ways of God because to do so, to go against God, leads us out of his plan into brokenness, into pain, into destruction, into fear, into shame, into blame, into all the rest. That's what happens when we fight against God's design. But now we're going to turn and we're going to see God individually address the serpent, the woman, and the man and we're going to see some actual curses from God for their sin. Because God is going to bring this stuff to bear. First, the serpent. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have here a weird mingling 
of God talking to the animal, the serpent, and to the devil who's behind the animal. God says about snakes, they're going to, for all of history, be an example of the humiliation that comes on the world because of sin. They crawl on their belly, they lick the dirt. And quite frankly, they're just nasty little critters that you don't want around, right? That's right. Again, probably a couple of you are snake people. Probably. Most of y'all are normal, though. God's main purpose, though, is not to talk about the animals. Talk about the devil behind the deception. And God says to the devil, this action of yours, you deceiving the woman, that has sealed your doom. For all of human history, there's going to be a conflict between human beings and the devil. And in the end, God says the devil is going to be destroyed like a snake whose head is crushed. God is going to win. The devil is going to be properly and eternally judged. Know that. Write it down. Secondly, the woman. 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there are two consequences here for the woman for her disobedience to God's command. Two particular curses for her. First, God says, having children will hurt a lot. Now, I have no personal experience in this arena. But, according to all the research that I have done, This is still the case. Does anybody wish to dispute that research? We're going to accept that that childbearing still hurts a lot. Okay. See, we can agree on things. But that would not have been the case had the woman not sinned against God. Secondly... The woman and the man are going to be in conflict. Verse 16 says that the woman will have a, see the word desire there? She will have a desire for her husband that appears not to be fulfilled. The Hebrew word behind the word desire here, it's an interesting word. There's one other place you see it used near this. Flip over real quick if you're using a paper Bible to Genesis 4. Seven, because I want to show you the same word desire. It's in the context of God talking to Cain, who's about to lose his mind and murder his brother. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. See the next phrase? Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Go back to Genesis 3.16. What did God say about the woman? Your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be to rule over your husband. There's something behind the word desire here that includes more than a longing for one's companionship. 
This is a longing for mastery. That's what the word is attempting to communicate to us. So it appears that the second part of the curse to the woman in Genesis chapter 3.16 is that for all of human history, there will be a tendency toward conflict between men and women. There will be a desire on the part of sinful women to rule over the men in their homes, to have the mastery, and the men in their homes will not allow it. Instead, sinful men will in turn mistreat women which will make marriage hard there will be a battle to get things right in the middle of a wrong-headed world marital strife marital conflict is a part of the curse of human sin this is where the theology of marriage stuff is starting to come in right in chapter 2 we saw that the woman was created to be the man's fit helper. She was going to help him to do what? She was going to help him, and they were going to be fruitful, and they were going to multiply. She was going to be his perfect companion. But because of the fall, because of rebellion, we find that both of these areas, the two areas that God created the woman for, childbearing and companionship and helping the man in in life, they are now going to become dramatically harder because of their rebellion against God. Third thing, third curse, the man, verse 17 Through 19, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So, first in the consequences that God pronounces on Adam, the man, the Lord curses the earth itself. The ground is not going to behave like it should. Plants are not going to grow as they should. Thorns are going to exist. Crops are going to fail from time to time. But also work is going to be hard. Sweat is introduced. How many of you don't really enjoy sweat just in general? Just, just asking for y'all, y'all living in the desert. Now, I get it, by the way. Sometimes you get a good workout in, you like the sweat you work up. But in general, folks, it's not like, well, I am so glad I'm sweaty right now. Right? That's not how this works. The man is going to work hard just to scratch up enough food to survive. It should have been easy. It should have been a pleasure, but it was taken from him. Earning a living becomes a chore instead of a joy. But the worst of all this is that death is introduced. The man will die. Humans will die. God made us from the dust of the ground. God says eventually we are all going to return to the ground. Back in chapter 2, the man was supposed to live for God. And he was supposed to tend and keep the garden. Isn't that, wasn't that his job? You live for me, you keep the garden, you tend the garden. Because of sin, these two things, these two assignments for the man are now broken. Tending 
Working is now hard. There's thorns. And death exists. Living is hard. Y'all, sin is a very serious thing. Turning against God brings destruction. Every time you turn against God, it brings something negative. And we should know that all of the ugliness of the world we live in has come to us because of human rebellion. Had mankind not rebelled against God, have you ever thought about what wouldn't exist? There would be no hospitals. There would be no ambulances. There would be no lawyers to file lawsuits. There would be no police needed to break up domestic disputes. There would be no funerals. There would be no thorns. There would be no sinus infections. There would be no allergies. There would be no viruses. There would be no broken bones. There would be no divorce. There would be no unemployment. There would be no starvation. There would be no human trafficking. There would be no children without their parents. There would be no poverty. There would be no cancer. There would be no death. Don't you hate that all those things have to exist? We should. And we should hate that sin is what has done this to us. Tremble at the divine consequences for sin. You see what the fall has done to humanity. You've seen how it has harmed and distorted marriage and human relationships. I guess there's one question. Is there hope for all this? And yes, there is. And we're going to see it as the end, at the end of the chapter because God is better than the devil. God is stronger than the devil. The serpent thought he could ruin God's plan, but he's wrong. In fact, what the devil did is gave a wide open door for God to demonstrate both his justice and his mercy. And I think that's good. Four pictures I will give you of mercy from God before we finish, okay? First, a rescuer will come to humanity. A rescuer will come to humanity. Genesis 3.15 says, God says, I will put enmity to the devil between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise his heel. God, as he pronounced judgment on the serpent, as he pronounces judgment on the devil, makes a promise of tremendous significance. Some people call this passage the Proto-Evangelion. That means the first gospel, the first good news. This is the first hint in the scripture of the ultimate story that God is unfolding. You see, here we find out that somebody's coming, born of woman, who will be the instrument of God's ultimate victory over the serpent, and he will be the instrument of humanity's ultimate rescue. Because you see, God already had in his mind, long before he created the universe, he knew he would be providing the way for sinful human beings to be forgiven. And God always had planned that he would send his son into the world to suffer the consequences for the sins of those he would forgive. And that was going to hurt the bruising of the heel. But the work God's son would do would ultimately crush the head of the devil and bring salvation to the people of God. No, it's not all spelled out in that verse, by the way. 
But if you read through the scriptures, you will see time and time and time again that God promises and promises and promises that he's going to send a person into the world to bring his forgiveness and that someone who is coming is Jesus. Secondly, humanity is going to survive. Humanity will continue. How do we know? Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So you all know death is going to be the result of the people eating the fruit. But God chose not to immediately kill off humanity. Instead, God delayed the carrying out of his justice so that he could allow the human race to survive. This is the mercy of God. By the way, what's this. Adam gives the woman a new name. He calls her Eve. The word Eve means life. It's exactly like the name Zoe today. And in naming the woman, Adam, what's he doing? Adam is supposed to lead, right? What do we say that Adam is doing when he names things? He's leading. He's he's stepping back into his role as the leader in the family. And he shows that he trusts. He genuinely believes the Lord is going to keep his promise. He's going to birth the race of humanity through this couple. After all, Eve will have children. Adam knows it. She's going to be the mother of the human race. God is going to let there be people born. That is the mercy of God. Third, God covers our shame. Third, God covers our shame. Genesis 3, 21 And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God makes clothes to cover up the nakedness of the humans. That's nice. Those leaves weren't really going to work. God provided the only proper covering for their shame. That's mercy. And scholars would tell you, At this moment when God covers human shame with animal skins is likely the first instance in scripture of an animal sacrifice. You see, it seems like God must have had to take the lives of innocent animals if he's going to let the guilty humans live and have their guilt covered. And that is exactly what would ultimately happen when Jesus would die to pay for the sins of everybody God would ever forgive. Fourth, last bit, God protects us from eternal brokenness. God protects us from eternal brokenness. 23 and 20, or 22 to 24, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here, God is acting to prevent the fallen humans from eating of the tree of life. Why does he do that? God never intended that you and I would have to live in a world that is broken, fallen, and cursed. 
God has something bigger and better for his children than what we experience in the here and now. Aren't you glad about that? Not letting us live forever in sin is actually a mercy from God. Now, we're going to wrap up real fast with something about marriage and something about hope. Just one piece here, right? What is the marital result of sin? We talked about it already, right? Because Adam and Eve sinned, conflict in the relationship over leadership in the home results. But if conflict in a marital relationship over the issue of leadership in the home is a result of sin, we should draw the conclusion that God's design is what is supposed to be in place of the conflict indicated in 3.16. The man's job in the home is to bear the responsibility of leading and protecting in the home, tending and caring. And the wife's job in the home, though she is of equal value with the man, her job is to fulfill the role as a faithful helper. Both of them are of equal worth, but they have different jobs to do. And it is the result of human sin when we want to fight against that design. It is the result of human sin when men want to shirk their responsibility to protect, provide, and lead. It is the result of sin when women want to grasp for a role of leadership that God did not intend them to take and have to play. All ugliness and hardship in human marriage comes from this moment in time when the man in the Bible refused to follow the command of God. Because Adam would not protect his wife, he hurt your marriage and mine. But praise God, there is hope. God promised that a descendant of the woman would come into the world and would crush the devil. And the promised one came, and his name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He lived perfectly where Adam failed. He died to pay the price for human sin, just as the animals died in verse 21, so that the Lord could cover the people with skins. And Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered death, and he offers genuine eternal life to every single person who will turn away from their rebellion against God and entrust their souls to the Lord. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you're in this room and you've never asked the Lord Jesus, please, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, I give myself to you, please be my Savior. If that's never been in your life, I would urge you, do that today. If you're listening on Facebook, if you're watching us online, and you realize how broken your life is, and you've never come to Jesus for rescue, I urge you to come to him, not because he'll make life easy, but because he will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life with the Lord, and that is is good and if you're a follower of Jesus I urge you give him thanks give him thanks even as you seek to follow him in his design in every aspect of your life let's pray together friends father thank you your word is good it is super challenging it is hard we fail to do what we should do so regularly And we would ask you now, help us be your people. Help us be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.